So as I <clears throat> worked through Genesis chapter 46 this week, um, I was brought back to many memories, too many, too many memories that I have of moving. Um, Mariana and I have moved far too many times in our young and fleeting life. For some reason, in the last nine years, not even, not even nine years yet, <clears throat> of marriage, uh, we've moved seven times. That's too many times. Stephen Matheny's probably been at every single one of them. Y'all pray for his back. Um, <clears throat> if we start talking about moving again, just stop us. Say, listen, you just wait. The market will change. That you just stop. Just stop. Okay. Uh, moving is stressful. It's it's difficult. Um, some of you guys maybe have been living in the same place for fifty years, and that's awesome. Uh, but you know we're starting to get more and more out of towners. I think who've been around the block, and you know that finding a home is difficult. And then once you find the home, you have to pack up all your stuff, and you have to procure some kind of moving truck, and call all your friends who have trucks, and see if they're available on that Saturday in like three weeks from now, and beg a handful of friends from church to come and help you. And then you just don't really sleep for three days, you know, because you're trying to get everything moved. And there's just boxes in your living room for about a year. Um, so it's, it's, uh, just don't, don't, don't move too much. Uh, young people, it's just, just don't do it. Moving, moving is also emotional. It's amazing how quickly when we do move into a place that we develop these strong emotional ties to a lump of wooden bricks, right? That we sleep in at night. Um, but it becomes a, a place of nostalgia. It becomes a place that we, think is safe, that we're able to sleep well in at night. Um, and so when we end up leaving that place, we almost feel like we're losing a friend or something, you know? Like a part of us is, is, is changing. Um, and then there's the emotional response to the new place that we go to. Will that place feel like home? Or will it smell like the old people, right? How, how, how will I get used to this place? Do I, I don't know the roads well yet. Is, you know, are my children going to be happy here? Will this be the place that I grow old and my grandkids come visit? Um, maybe some of you are in that kind of transition now or have just finished a transition like that. Uh, you'll be able to commiserate very well with old Jacob this morning as he takes the trek from Canaan to Egypt. Genesis 45 was the big reveal that we've all been waiting for. Jacob takes off the, or jo Joseph takes off the mask and he's like, it's me, right? All along, it was the long-lost brother. He couldn't hold it in anymore. He told his brothers the truth. This was the young brother that they tried to kill and sold as a slave so many years ago. And now he's the authority figure over Egypt. Everybody comes bowing down to him for food in the midst of this big famine. <clears throat> and instead of pursuing some kind of vengeance with his brothers, he offers reconciliation and forgiveness and a new relationship and he invites them to come live with him in Egypt and they weep and they hug and they talk and, and Joseph says listen the reason I'm I am doing all this is because you didn't do this right God did this to preserve life God allowed all of this to happen for good and so they don't really have much of a choice in the matter uh, as, as much as Jacob, I'm sure, would have loved to see Joseph, they also need a place to live. There's no food in Canaan. They are struggling. 
And now chapter 46 is moving day, right? It's been on the books. They know they need to move. They're packing up the U-Haul. It's time to go to Egypt. But remember God's covenant with Abraham from the beginning. Genesis 17, the Lord said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And listen, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Part of the covenant was not only that he would be their God and they would be his people and they would become a nation, but they would also inherit a land. And that land was a physical place called Canaan. And even before this, in chapter 15, God said something else really important. He said in chapter 15, verse 13, the Lord said to Abram at that time, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is the very beginning of Abraham's covenant, and God puts in this caveat. There's going to be 400 years of affliction in a land that is not yours. So Canaan is the final destination. That's where his people belong. But here's the heads up. There's 400 years in the middle somewhere where you're not going to be there. That foreign land we know to be Egypt, where they would be afflicted for some time. But Jacob doesn't know that. For all Jacob knows, this is a rental until the famine passes. So they can go back to Canaan. That's where God promised them to be, right? And remember, Jacob is about 130 years old. In this scene. Yeah, that's that's old, right? 130 years old. Do you guys know any 130-year-olds that are very interested in moving? We tend to get a little set in our ways, right? And now they've lived in Canaan for about 30 years. They're settled. This is where God told them to go all along. So we had to be wondering, did I do something wrong? Did, Did God change the plan? What? I thought Canaan was, why, you know, had God forgotten the promise? The Lord answers all of Jacob's concerns and fears in just the first four verses. And that's my first point this morning. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Look at the text again. The first thing you'll notice in verse 1 is Jacob's name. <clears throat> so who? Israel. Not Jacob. Israel. Now remember, he he was uh, named Israel back in chapter 32 during that, you know, nighttime wrestling scene with the Lord. Um, And he had a dislocated hip and limped away, and the Lord renamed him uh, Israel, meaning one who strives with God. And sort of throughout these chapters, his name sort of is interchangeable, Jacob and Israel. We know Jacob means deceiver. And uh, that showed his life um, and many of his actions in his early life. And now he's called Israel, one who strives or wrestles with the Lord. And so um, those names sort of come in at different key places, if he's referred to as Jacob or if he's referred to as Israel. Here he's now referred to as Israel. Israel where? In Beersheba. In Beersheba. That's also an important part of this. Um, <clears throat> Beersheba, you know, is, is a place full of family history. They'd already packed up their bags. 
They had started traveling. They were getting just outside Canaan. They reached Beersheba. Abraham first named the place Beersheba because of a little squabble he had with Abimelech when they had the whole wells thing going on. They were stealing wells. And uh, Beersheba means well of oaths or oath of wells. Um, But uh, it's a place that Jacob had been to many, many times. Many, many times throughout his life. And right outside of Beersheba was Bethel, a place that was even more intimate in Jacob's life, a place that he named himself, House of God. What happened in, in Bethel in chapter 28? Does anybody remember? He, he puts a stone behind his head and falls asleep for the night, and he has this epic dream. What comes out of heaven? A ladder or a stairway, right? And what's going up and down? Angels going up and down this ladder from heaven to earth. <clears throat> and the Lord promises to Jacob right then in that dream, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. So here he is in Beersheba, this you know, place full of family history. He remembers his dream, his vision, the, the, the latter. He remembers his father Isaac and his father Abraham. And he remembers his life. Jacob's had a lot of ups and downs, right? Deceiver. From day one, he grabs his brother's heel as they're being born. He steals his brother's blessing, uh, Esau, from Isaac. He goes to Haran to find a wife, ends up spending 14 years there, and ends up with four wives. Then he takes a bunch of sheep, and he heads back to Canaan, <clears throat> and, and then, of course, this is when Joseph goes missing and we get into the later half of Genesis. But with all of Jacob's messiness, all his ups and downs, all his sins, he is still the one that God has chosen and God has promised to be with until it is fulfilled. He's not done with Jacob. Only Jacob did God give the name Israel. He didn't give that name to anybody else. So he's still striving with the Lord even now as he enters Beersheba for the last time, remembering his true name, and he is led to worship. He gets to Beersheba, and he offers sacrifices, probably had to build some kind of altar unless there was an old one there from the olden days, and he sacrificed animals to Yahweh. And as he does that, God shows up again. Through visions in the night, the Lord calls out to Jacob. He says, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. This is the same God. Isaac's God, Abraham's God, the God of ages past. He has not changed, therefore his plans, his promises have not changed. But he sees Jacob's fears. He sees that Jacob is concerned. This old man, right, is excited to see his long-lost son, but he's not exactly reeling to leave Canaan. I thought this was the place we're supposed to be. So God gives four reasons for him not to be afraid. Four reasons. The first reason is, I'm still going to make you into a great nation. That hasn't changed. Plan A is still plan A. You will become as many as the sands of the sea, as many as the stars in the sky. I already gave you 12 sons, for goodness sake. I think that's a good head start towards forming a nation, the nation of Israel. Trust me. Trust me. Go to Egypt. Second reason, he says, I will go down with you. I'm going to build you into a nation, and I'm going to. 
I'm going to Egypt. If it's not comforting enough to have your sons with you or your servants or all the other things that I've given you, I myself will go down to Egypt with you. I'm not staying in Canaan. I'm not staying in the heavens. I'm not far from you. I'm going with you. We'll be traveling to Egypt together. And I'll see everything that happens to you. And I'll go through everything that happens to you with you. And every time we see that in the Old Testament, right? Our Jesus alarm should go off. Emmanuel, God with us. God desires to be with his people so much that he descends unto us in our lowly state of fears. We don't even trust him. He comes to us and says, we're going to do this together. And hence he comes to the earth and the man, Jesus Christ, to be our God with us. The third reason, he says, I will bring you up again. I'll go down with you and I'll bring you up again. It's enough that I'm going to be there with you. But just so you know, Egypt is not how this story ends. I will bring you up again. And even though Jacob does die some 14 years later in Egypt, Joseph takes his body back to Canaan, takes his bones to be buried in Canaan. So even in death, the Lord keeps his promise. I will bring you back up again. And then fourth, the sweetest that would really get in Jacob's heart. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Here's from the Lord. If he had any doubts left about Joseph's well-being, he was alive and well. And he's going to be the one that takes care of him in his final hours. Your beloved Joseph is alive. He'll be by your deathbed. And, and listen, I have not reached the age where this is the kind of thing that's on my, my mind but I would imagine when we reach the end of life, we can put up with a lot if only we know that our loved ones are near us. Don't you see when, when people get to their end, they just want their loved ones nearby. And here is God just comforting Joseph or comforting Jacob with the fact that Joseph will be there when he dies. He comforts him with something greater than Canaan could ever provide. So don't be afraid, basically, because God is God. Don't be afraid because I'm God. And, and here's what I want to say to us this morning as, as a pastor. When change comes our way, it ought to be enough for us that God is God. When, when change and relocation and fears and, and all these anxieties about tomorrow come our way, it ought to be enough for us to know that God is still God. He doesn't change. Life changes. God does not. He keeps His promises. He loves us. He works for our good. He sanctifies us. He suffers with us. He raises us up again. That process or that plan never changes. It is the methods or the processes that do change throughout our lives. The Lord uses a lot of things to sanctify us, right? He can sanctify us with a cool class on evangelism on Sunday mornings. Or he can also sanctify us with a really scary CAT scan that has some troubling images on it. Obviously, one of those is more preferable than the other, isn't it? But we don't control the processes and the methods that God uses to sanctify us. We, we can't control those. God does control those. And that should give us hope that the Lord is the one in control of the processes of change in our lives. What we have to do is learn to embrace the processes 
that the Lord brings and trust him no matter what. Trust him no matter what. And even as a church, right, think of all of us together. We've gone through a difficult season of change. For those of you who've been with us for a while, um, did the Lord leave us? He hasn't left us, right? He hasn't left us. And I'll be honest, there were many days where I was afraid. I don't know if I'm allowed to be afraid as your pastor, but I was. I didn't know if we were going to have a church many days. But he has been with us, and I'm sure I'll be afraid again. (laughs) But at least we have a testimony now. God was with us then. We have no reason to think he won't be with us in 2023 or 24 or whatever the days ahead bring. We must trust the Lord to preserve his church, even if he chooses to do it through uncomfortable methods. We must trust the Lord to preserve our lives, even if he chooses to do that through uncomfortable methods. Isn't this how chapter 45 ended? God, Jacob or Joseph says, I, Joseph says, God did this to preserve life. That's why this change is happening. Do we trust the Lord or do we trust our circumstances? Let us not be afraid. God is God. Amen? So, with newfound confidence, Jacob takes all his stuff, all of his family, a big family, and he goes along with God's plan. Number two, leaving Beersheba. Leaving Beersheba. Um, verses 5 through 7 make it clear that Jacob and his sons leave nothing behind. They set out. They carry Jacob, their little ones, their wives, the wagons, all their livestock, their goods. Um, uh, his sons, his sons' sons, his daughters, his sons' daughters, all of his offspring. He brings with him to Egypt. Uh, They don't have a storage unit left behind in Canaan. They're not paying a rental fee to keep some of their goods. They don't have a plan B. They take everyone and everything. I've heard it said that after you have kids, vacations aren't really vacations. They're they're just a cramped minivan with tired kids who've had too much sugar, right? I don't know if that's true. Um, But can you imagine all of Jacob's offspring traveling across the desolate land of Egypt together or towards Egypt and they weren't going back, right? And they probably looked funny in the Egyptian wagons, a bunch of Hebrews, um, for anybody that might have seen this caravan. And then this big chunk, verses 8 through 27, go into great detail about every single person that made the journey. Verses 8 through 15, that first chunk, deals with the sons he had with Leah which ended up being 33 people. Verses 16 to 18 deal with the sons that he had with Zilpah, which totaled 16 people. Verses 19 through 22 deals with the sons that he had from Rachel, which was just two, right, Joseph and Benjamin, but totaled to 14 people. And then the final verses, 23 through 25, deal with the sons he had with Bilhah, which totaled seven people. So we have all these names, children and grandchildren, that will not be mentioned again. But they were all 
on the wagons. They all had a seat. They were all going to Egypt. And then verse 26 sort of summarizes this whole thing for us. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born in Egypt were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70 people. Now there's two kinds of Bible readers. Tell me which one you are. You read this and then you go back and you count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you're trying to find 70. And then there's another kind of Bible reader that says, cool, 70 people. Right on, next chapter. (laughs) Um, Now the thing is, we can play numbers games here. There are uh, some little bit of squabbles about the numbers. Um, If you do count all of these folks in Genesis chapter 46, plus the four, Joseph and his wife and his two children, in Egypt, you do total 70 people. But what about the son's wives or the other daughters or some unnamed people? Exodus chapter 1 excludes, it recounts this, but excludes Jacob from the list of 70. And then Deuteronomy recounts this and actually includes Jacob. And then you've got older Septuagint manuscripts that actually say Joseph had nine sons, not just two, which would then total up to 75. And so all I'm saying is we can, we can squabble a little bit with the numbers, or we can say maybe this was a good round number of all the people that were traveling from Canaan to Egypt. And seven is kind of a big deal, right? In the Bible, completion, wholeness, you have the entirety of the people of Israel traveling from Canaan to Egypt. It's almost as if, as if God was waiting for them to reach this certain size and number for them to continue growing when they get to that foreign land. And that day has come. All 70 are prepared to leave everything behind to follow Yahweh together. And again, many of these sons and grandsons would never be mentioned again. But it was integral for the preservation of their nation that they all make this trek to Egypt. And that's what the chapter's about. So I ask us, what might it look like for us to put all our eggs in one basket? No plan B's with the Lord's will. No exit, no back doors, right? Worldly wisdom says you spread your resources, lower your risk. They could have left some folks in Canaan to sort of hold out the fort. You know, they've done a lot of work there. We don't want to leave all that behind. Or, you know, maybe they could just have goods shipped to them every couple weeks or something from Egypt. There's a lot of ways they could have compromised. But Christianity isn't very good at compromising with us. It's all in or nothing, right? Jesus says we have to be born again. You can't be a a slave to two different things. You're going to love one more than the other. You give all to Christ, you surrender all or nothing. There's no part of us that doesn't belong to Jesus. And we can get fired up and start talking about following Christ in every aspect of our lives until suffering comes. And that's when this principle really comes into play, that there's no turning back with Jesus. There's nowhere else we can go but to Jesus. We have no backup plan, 
but God's agenda, because His agenda will not fail. We must see and anticipate suffering under the lens of faithful obedience to Christ. When we are faithful and all our eggs are in that one basket, we should anticipate the experience of suffering. That is part of following Jesus. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial arrives as a testing of your faith. It is good for us to be afflicted. And it's because of Israel's faithfulness that they went to Egypt. And it's because of Israel's faithfulness that they would then become slaves under the tyranny of another Pharaoh. And it's because of Israel's faithfulness that after God delivers them, they would then spend 40 years wandering in the desert. Faithfulness got them there. Faithfulness brought the suffering. Obedience brought the suffering. Following Jesus with all our chips in the pot welcomes suffering. But just as God leads the change, it's also good to know that God leads the suffering. God leads the suffering. That good old hymn, we sang it at our wedding. He leadeth me. Sometimes mid scenes of deepest gloom. Sometimes where Eden's bowers bloom. By water still or a troubled sea. Still tis his hand that leadeth me. Lord, I would never place my hand. Or Lord, would I place my hand in thine. Never murmur nor repine. Content whatever lot I see. Since tis my God that leadeth me. It was God's decree that they go to Egypt and be known not as these homebodies, but as sojourners, as exiles who are homeless. And that happened to them in part so that Peter could say about us that we too are sojourners, exiles in a foreign land. We are the 70 making the trek to Egypt. We are the 600,000 walking across the Red Sea. We put all our chips into following Christ together. We will certainly be an eyesore walking across the desert. But as John Bunyan wrote in The Pilgrim's Progress, This hill, though high I covet to ascend, the difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. I urge you to follow Christ and don't look back. Whatever difficulty it might bring you, it is worth it all to follow Jesus. And know that he doesn't just bring suffering to torment us or, you know, not even sometimes to discipline us. But sometimes the suffering is actually to preserve us. It's good for us. And, and that's how the, the chapter ends. They are preserved by the Lord. Verse 28. Preserved by God. So he sent Judah ahead of them, we find out in verse 28, to show the way before him in Goshen that they could come to the land. Uh, and then Judah prepares his chariot and went to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Uh, Judah kind of keeps that leadership role, goes ahead of them to sort of check things out, scope out the land. The rest of them are traveling to Egypt. And then consider this. Joseph, who's like king of the land here, and for many years now has had everybody coming to him. They bow down to him. And he says, if I don't see Benjamin, you can't even come inside, right? They're coming to him for everything. But Joseph saddles up. He gets in his own wagon. 
He gets in his own chariot. He leaves his fancy building and he goes to his daddy on the outside of town. Everybody's been coming to him, not this time. He's going to greet his father. He presented himself to Jacob. He fell on his neck just like he did with his brothers and he wept and he wept and he wept and he wept. Their hearts were knit together, as Judah said in the last, uh, or the chapter before last, that um, they, they, were, they were tied together, their hearts were bound to one another. And now that they've been reunited, Jacob says in verse 30, he says, I can die now, right? I, I've had it all. I, I, I've seen my son is alive. You can take me now. I, I, I'm good. This was worth it all. Leaving Canaan and the rest of all those things to see Joseph one more time was worth all the trouble. And Jacob would go on to live about 17 more years after this. And in God's kindness, they were able to make up for some lost time. But first, there's a matter of business they have to attend to. The Hebrew people have one primary trade. Laban taught Jacob how to keep sheep. That's all they've been doing, right? They got some other things they might can do, but they're primarily shepherds, keepers of livestock. <clears throat> and so um, it's going to be difficult enough knowing that Egyptians and Hebrews didn't get along and now there's this added difficulty that shepherds are also abominations to Egyptians. So Joseph has a plan. In verse 31, he kind of does a little bit of politicking. He goes to Pharaoh, who he knows is on his side, and says, listen, my family's here. I know you're for me and you're for my family. They're shepherds. They're shepherds. You know, I'm not going to beat around the bush about it. They're shepherds. What, what, what are we going to do, you know? And... Uh, so Pharaoh loves Joseph. Pharaoh is prepared to give Joseph anything he wants. They work out this plan for them to live in Goshen, a good land. And Joseph tells the brothers exactly what to say, sort of a, a political maneuver. This is what you want to say when you come and approach Pharaoh. Say the exact right words, right? Don't say anything that's going to get you in trouble. <clears throat> um, so they tell Pharaoh that they are keepers of livestock, knowing that Goshen will be the ideal location for keeping animals. And just far enough outside of sight of too many Egyptians to cause problems. I had a map. I didn't put it up there. But Goshen is sort of right outside of Egypt and still closer to Canaan, uh, also called Ramses, uh, if you're a historical person. But um, So this was an ideal place for them to live. They can keep their animals there, and they're just far enough away from Egyptians. So, in other words, it turns out the thing that made them an abomination to the world... This general trade that they had learned, being shepherds, would actually be the thing that preserves their life and allows them to thrive in a land in Egypt. They weren't put in the capital. They were put in the farmlands in Goshen, the good land, where they could live and grow as an independent nation. And Jacob, we remember, spent those 14 years in Haran waiting on Rachel's availability when he was younger. God was also using those years to make him a master shepherd for such a time as this. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it's their reputation of shepherding that ends up saving them. 
We know from the Christmas story that shepherds were the lowest of the low, right? You always hear preachers talk about that at Christmas time. The scum of the earth, the one that nobody wanted to be around, poor, uneducated men. But it's the shepherds that first would hear the angelic chorus of hallelujahs that the Lamb of God had been born and was here to save sinners. These shepherds point us to the ultimate plan to preserve life, and that's through the sacrifice of Jesus as the final atonement for our sin. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep so that you and I might escape the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins and enjoy eternal, joyful bliss with our Creator, Redeemer, and friend. The same shepherds in Bethlehem had a message of preservation to proclaim. Through Christ, he will raise us up again. Through Christ, consolation for Israel has come. He will raise us up again. If you're not in Christ this morning, I urge you, I'm no shepherd, literally, but I urge you to come, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, see the good news that he has for sinners. If you're in Christ this morning, this is my encouragement for you. God's plan is worth it all. It's worth every trial. It's worth the worst thing that could happen to you, I promise. Here's a preacher who I know I have to say stuff like this right, but I mean it. It really is worth it. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you will not compare to the eternal weight of glory that is with you and given to you freely as an inheritance in Jesus. It doesn't compare. Jesus is worth it all. When we've been there 10,000 years in the new earth, there will not be a single day in which you think to yourself, I wish I hadn't followed Jesus so closely. I wish I hadn't given it all away for Christ. That thought will never enter your brain. It's worth it all. Every form of suffering, every anxious change, every bit of loneliness, animosity from the world, for the treasure of knowing and enjoying the person of Jesus Christ forevermore. In that day when all of our earthly belongings are gone, our nostalgic comforts and temporary pleasures are left behind, we will see Christ and we will say with Jacob, it's enough. Take me now. This is all I've ever wanted. This is all I've ever wanted. It will be the reward of all those who have loved him. They have longed for his appearing. Just a little while. It will be worth it all. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the uh, picture of these sojourners leaving their homeland to a foreign land, and what a picture for our own lives. We are pilgrims, wandering, waiting for that good home that you are making. And so, Lord, as you're making all things new, we wait on you, we trust you. We sell all we have to buy the treasure in the field. <clears throat> My Jesus, I love thee. If ever I love thee. It's now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus.
If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.